Dear friends, my name is John Bergen, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance. In this podcast, we ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? The music you heard here is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everyone, but it's geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. We did not replace anyone. This week's lectionary begins with a famous story from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. I love the book of Acts. Too often, we read the Gospels and ask, how could a community ever put this radical message into practice? And then, in answer to our prayer, there is this sacred text right after the Gospel of John that tells the story of a community wrestling and stumbling through the living out of the kingdom of God. Acts is such a movement story. It's packed with these stories of repression forcing changes in strategy, of the power of disruptive direct action to attract new people into the movement, of long organizing meetings and arguments over who we prioritize in our base building. It has prison breaks and radical redistributive economics and meetings with full language accessibility courtesy of the Holy Spirit. And it has shipwrecks and lynch mobs and so many resurrections. We could all benefit from spending more time with Acts. This week's lectionary begins with a famous story from the book of Acts. But before we dive into it, let's just listen This is Acts 11, 1 through 18. The news traveled fast, and in known time, the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard about it, heard that the non-Jewish outsiders were now in. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, some of his old associates, concerned about circumcision, called him on the carpet. What do you think you're doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd, eating what is prohibited and ruining our good name? So Peter starting from the beginning, laid it out for them step by step. Recently, I was in the town of Joppa praying. I fell into a trance and saw a vision, something like a huge blanket lowered by ropes at its four corners, came down out of heaven and settled on the ground in front of me, milling around in the blanket were farm animals and wild animals and reptiles and birds, you name it, it was there. Fascinated, I took it all in. Then I heard a voice, go to it, Peter, kill and eat. 
And I said, oh no, master, I've never so much as tasted food that wasn't kosher. But the voice spoke again. If God says it's okay, it's okay. This happened three times, and then the blanket was pulled back up into the sky. Just then, three men showed up at the house where I was staying, sent from Caesarea to get me. The spirit told me to go with them, no questions asked. So I went with them, I and, and six friends, to the man who had sent for me. He told us how he had seen an angel right in his own house, real as his next-door neighbor, saying, Send to Joppa and get Simon, the one they call Peter. He'll tell you something that will save your life, in fact, you and everyone you care for. So I started in talking. Before I'd spoken half a dozen sentences, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as she did on us the first time. I remember Jesus' words, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, if God gave the same exact gift to them as to us when we believed in the Master Jesus Christ, how could I object to God? Hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down. And then as it sank in, they started praising God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations, opened them up to life. A few notes here. This, uh, this is a retelling. Another weird and cool thing about Acts is that the authors want to make sure we really get the stories. A couple weeks ago, we heard the story of Saul getting knocked down and set straight by Jesus while on the road to Damascus. And over the course of the book, Saul, who also goes by Paul, tells the story two more times. And each time, it changes a bit, like any good story, and it all gets a lot more embellished than Paul's telling of it in the letters to the base communities in Corinth and Galatia. So this week's lectionary begins with Peter narrating the story of what happened to him back in the previous chapter. Like the authors want us to hear this and understand it, really. I made the The Word is Resistance episode for the first telling of the story, the sixth Sunday in Easter season last year. And in the Spirit's infinite wisdom, I am here making another episode about Peter's retelling of his experience. In last year's episode, I talked about Peter, and I wondered what Cornelius, quote, the man who had sent for me, the Roman centurion with all his power and privilege, might do after baptism by Peter. I also made a side comment about how there's this long history of hearing this story as justifying Christian supersessionism. That's the idea that Christians have replaced Jews as God's chosen people. I rambled off a paragraph about how to Peter this was a disagreement inside the family about how much of the book of Acts is an argument about whether Gentiles can be welcomed into the movement without having to embrace Jewish purity law, how it's not about whether Gentiles are superior to Jews. I made that paragraph side ramble and then I moved on. But I signed up for this week of the podcast without checking the lectionary texts and in the Spirit's infinite wisdom, I am returned to this. And since the lectionary and the text itself are circling back, it's time for me to circle back. We did not replace anyone. Before he walked into the Chabad of Poe in California and opened fire, the shooter wrote a seven-page letter spelling out his core beliefs. That Jewish people, guilty in his view of killing Jesus and controlling the media, deserved to die. He believed that his intention to kill Jews would glorify God. 
As they marched through the streets of Charlottesville in August 2017, white nationalists and alt-right members famously chanted, Jews will not replace us. And again, and again, the far right tells us who they are and how they have been influenced by Christian supremacy. Whether they are cynically adopting Christian language for its social technology and how it might be used to oppress women and ensure the continuation of the quote, white race, or whether they are deeply informed by Christian theology and Christian replacement theology, the question is, what more do we need to hear? What more do we need to hear to understand that very mainstream Christian theologies of supersessionism and supremacy are daily informing what we have considered the far right? So let's talk for a minute about replacement theology. It's a simple idea that Jesus establishes a new covenant and a new religion with Christians as God's chosen people. Therefore, Jews have been replaced. The Jewish people are no longer a part of God's plan in this theology. This is not some new idea. We can talk about origin. Origin's born around 184 CE, and he was really, really psyched to martyr himself when he was 16, but his mother hid all his clothes, and he refused to turn himself into the Roman soldiers naked. So instead, he became an ascetic and allegedly had himself castrated to avoid temptations of the flesh, which isn't particularly relevant, but is a fascinating historical detail. He channeled all of this intensity into writing, which he did a lot of. And he wrote about a century after the way, that term for the early Christian community, separated from the Jewish community and established itself as its own religious tradition. Side note, uh, one of the ways that they did this, the early members of the way publicly declared their separation from Judaism, was in 96 CE by asking the Roman emperor to be exempted from the Jewish tax, saying, we're not Jews and we don't want to share in the oppression experienced by the Jewish people. Now, Origen accentuated this divide by accusing the Jewish people of killing Jesus, saying that, quote, they will never be restored to their former condition, for they committed a crime of the most unhallowed kind. Or let's talk about Augustine. In his infinite kindness, Augustine said that Christians should tolerate Jewish people, writing that, quote, for in the Jewish people was figured the Christian people, there a figure, hear the truth, there a shadow, hear the body, a kinder, gentler replacement theology. And so as Christians gained power and the mainstream faith was co-opted by empire, Jewish people were mocked discriminated against, relegated to narrow ghettos, forced to convert, tortured, expelled, accused, despised. By and large, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, Jewish people experienced more religious freedom under pagan leaders than under Christian kings and lords. From the 4th to 7th century, while every major theologian and bishop opposed the Jewish faith and community in writing, the Christian imperial leaders enacted a variety of civil laws against Jews, such as forbidding them from holding public office. As Christians declared themselves, or ourselves, the replacement for the Jewish people, we replaced and displaced indigenous religions and peoples. As a, quote, new Jewish people, we fulfilled our vision of the story of Joshua acting out the colonization of the Canaanites across the places we now call North America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. My own family and community and others like us declared ourselves Israelites crossing into the Promised Land when we settled in the lands of the Cree and other nations. 
a double replacement. Uprooted by war and violence in our homeland, we replaced ourselves in the Israelite narrative and then replaced native peoples. Over the centuries, the institutional Christian church's policies towards the Jewish community shifted with changing political alliances, economic circumstances, and imperial desires. Replacement theology, though, provided a crucial sense of superiority for Christian serfs and poor workers, just as white supremacy also does now. As April Rosenblum says in her zine, the past didn't go anywhere, making resistance to anti-Semitism part of all our movements. Anti-Semitism's job is to obscure the ruling class. Rosenblum writes, For centuries, Jewish communities could be expelled from European towns at any time, for any reason, and made homeless. Permission to stay lasted only as long as an area's rulers saw local Jews as useful. Ruling classes developed and passed down strategies to make good use of Jews' vulnerability. Rulers used Jews for middlemen jobs that put Jews in direct contact with the exploited, disgruntled peasantry, shielding rulers from the backlash for their unjust practices. A peasant might live a lifetime without seeing the nobleman who decided her fate. It was Jews who were the face of power at her door collecting taxes and rent. Jews who seemed in control, and Jews who faced the violence when peasants in poverty decided to resist. History is full of unpopular kings who managed to save their asses by turning the crowds against a trusty but disposable court Jew. As a king's agent, a court Jew might gain great personal privilege, even some power, but when problems arose, rulers counted on being able to divert mass blame and violence to the court Jew. Only a few might be tax collectors or court Jew, but all of an area's Jews were the ruler's handy target. When the economy or other conditions became unbearable, Jewish homes provided a whole neighborhood where Gentile masses could riot and let off steam. Many journalists and commentators writing after recent attacks on synagogues are always careful to say that Christianity doesn't support anti-Semitism. If you've missed the previous few minutes' summary of European Christianity's centuries of anti-Semitism, this idea is nonsense. Or they'll say that Christian leaders outright reject anti-Semitism, and they're not entirely wrong. After the Holocaust, European and American theologians and philosophers suddenly became interested in addressing anti-Semitism. The Catholic Second Vatican Council in the 1960s changed the Church's theology by stating that, quote, the Jews should not be presented as rejected or cursed by God as if this followed from the Holy Scriptures. The bishop specifically told the church that it must reject any form of anti-Semitism. Many Protestant leaders have said the same thing. But in so many churches on so many Sunday mornings, we still preach and hear a replacement theology. I think this week's lectionary explicitly sets this up. It pairs our Acts 11 text with a passage from Revelation 21, 1-6, which reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among the mortals. God will dwell with them as their God. They will be God's peoples, and God's self will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. 
And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also they said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And they said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. I love this passage, but I am hard-pressed not to assume that the arrangers of the lectionary want me to connect the new heaven and new earth with God making clean what Peter considered unclean. And the first heaven and earth which have passed away with kashrut, Jewish purity law. In this telling, Jewish law has been replaced by Christian grace, religion with faith, temple with Jesus, ethnicity with universality, and so on and so on. It's seductive. Just a few years ago, that's probably the sermon I would have preached. And I'm hard-pressed not to assume that the shooters at the Chabad of Poway and the Tree of Life Synagogue or anyone else who has perpetrated an act of anti-Semitic violence isn't trying to make claim to this new heaven by wiping out those who have already, by an act of theology, been replaced. Reverend Duke Kwan, a Presbyterian pastor, described to the Washington Post the Chabad shooter by saying, you actually hear a frighteningly clear articulation of Christian theology in certain sentences and paragraphs. He has, in some ways, been well taught in the church. Now those chants in Charlottesville and elsewhere, Jews will not replace us, have a specific modern ideological history. They stem from the conspiracy theory that Jews have organized black and brown communities to rise up and overthrow white civilization, that liberation movements everywhere are part of a plan to wipe out the white race. The anxiety here is intense. In this vision, we are historically precarious, caught up in a battle for our race's survival. The replacers live in fear of being replaced. This is the reality of oppressors everywhere that we live in fear of the revenge of the oppressed taking the exact form of their oppression. We live in fear of facing the harm we have caused or the harm that we have benefited from. We are worried, of course, that the oppressed might be keeping receipts and that the bill is coming due. closing today, I want to offer a few options for rereading this text, a few contributions to the potluck table to add to the many other non-supersessionist ways of reading this week's texts. I have borrowed these ideas, most of them from a Bible study I participated in this week led by Will O'Brien, a member of my community and a longtime leader of the Alternative Seminary here in Philadelphia. He's currently leading a six-week study of the Book of Acts, and earlier this week our class discussed this among other stories. So in line with my own Anabaptist tradition, here is some wisdom from the community. One, it's not about replacement, it's about invitation and gift. Peter goes up to Jerusalem and his friends ask him, why do you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Peter responds with this story where he sees a vision and hears a voice welcoming him to a picnic. He says no, 
And then three men show up at his house, like the three who visit Abraham in Genesis 18 and promise that he and Sarah will have a son, like the three times vision appears to Peter. And they invite him to Cornelius' house. He accepts this invitation, though it means he will break his own moral code and eat with uncircumcised colonizers. And as he begins to speak, the Holy Spirit falls on them. There are so many invitations here. A voice invites Peter to eat. Three men invite him to come to Caesarea. By speaking, he invites them to hear the story of Jesus. And there are so many gifts. The gift of food, the gift of a message, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of repentance. By accepting and offering invitation, we are open to new gifts. Two, it's not about replacement, it's about how the rules can change. The story is written in a time of intense debate about the faith and practice of the Jewish people. Rabbis across and outside of the Roman Empire were actively debating what constituted the center and edges of their community in the wake of the destruction of the temple, just as followers of the way were debating their own questions of center and edges. Traditions change as contexts change. Sometimes the Spirit says, you thought things worked this way, well, they don't work that way anymore. This is a critical organizing lesson. I think here of a Saul Alinsky story. Alinsky, through the legions of powerful community organizing groups that claim his lineage, is often identified with a strict set of rules about how to build power that you might, be, might summarize as don't talk ideology, just issues, no electoral politics, build organizations, not movements, focus on neighborhoods and on concrete winnable goals. But in practice, Alinsky and many community organizing groups today are willing to throw out past rules if something else is working better. I'm going to crib this story from an article by my friends Mark and Paul Engler, and I'll include a link to the full article in the transcript. They write, At the same time that Alinsky became a popular speaker on 1960s campuses, his vision of organizing put him at odds with many of the era's leading activists, both its student militants and its more high-profile leaders such as Martin Luther King Jr. In 1965 and 1966, tensions between organization and movement surfaced when King and his Southern Christian Leadership Council came to Chicago, Alinsky's home turf, to mount their first northern civil rights drive. While organizing in the Woodlawn neighborhood in early 1961, von Hoffman, a mentee of Alinsky, got a call from a civil rights activist taking part in the Freedom Rides, a protest designed to challenge segregated interstate busing in the South. The riders were violently attacked in Alabama. One of their buses was burned in Anniston, and they were beaten by a mob in Montgomery. Having just been released from a New Orleans hospital, the activist and some of his fellow participants contacted von Hoffman to express interest in making their first public appearance in Chicago. Von Hoffman was initially hesitant, wary that the event would not advance local organizing and mindful of previous civil rights rallies in Chicago that drew only a handful of picketers. Yet he arranged for a talk to be held in a large gymnasium in St. Cyril's Church. As Alinsky biographer Sanford Horwitt writes, on a Friday night, two hours before the program was to start, the gym was empty and von Hoffman was nervous. His initial fears seemed to be confirmed. An hour later, an elderly couple arrived, and then, to von Hoffman's total amazement, so many people turned up that there was no room left in the gym, in the foyer, or on the stairs. 
Von Hoffman arranged for loudspeakers to broadcast the talk to the hundreds of people in the streets outside the venue. Later, he left the event reeling. Far more people had come than his group could possibly have mobilized through its organizational structures, and the issues had generated a profound energy in the community. He woke up Alinsky with a middle-of-the-night phone call and explained what happened. Von Hoffman said, I think we should toss out everything we are doing organizationally and work on the premise that this is the moment of the whirlwind and we are no longer organizing but guiding a social movement. To his surprise, Alinsky responded by saying, You're right. Get on it tomorrow. The Woodlawn organization subsequently held its own version of the Freedom Rides, a bus caravan to register black voters. The event, Horwitt recounts, produced the largest single voter registration ever at City Hall, startled the city's power brokers, generated much greater publicity than Woodlawn's typical actions, and set the stage for further civil rights activism by the group. In criticizing Martin Luther King several years later, Linsky was not trying to write off the civil rights movement as a whole. A devotee of headline-grabbing direct action, he recognized its accomplishment, and yet he sought to present its leaders with the challenges of institutionalization, a question which King himself grappled with in his later years, and which is vital in thinking through about in thinking about how organizing models might be integrated. Sometimes, the rules need to change, and we need to be open to the invitation and the gift to step into it. Three. Experience precedes understanding. Acts is full of stories of disciples doing things without understanding why they're doing it. They step out in faith, and the Spirit shows up, maybe not quite when or how the disciples wanted to, but that's a lesson in itself. In this story, Peter doesn't quite get what God is saying to him, but he follows the invitation of the three visitors, and as a result, his understanding changes. He acts himself into a new way of thinking. Four. The new creation is not about replacement, but about a new place that is home for all beings. In the Revelation text, the new creation isn't some far-off place, some new undiscovered or uninhabited, reed-cleansed land. It is a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a real place, a precise place. You can find it on a map. You can, depending on the rules of the state of Israel or the whims of Israeli border officials, visit it. God brings into being a new heaven and new earth in a real place already existing. The home of God is among mortals. Among. In this new place that is already a real place, the promise is that God will dwell with all of us as our God. We will all be God's people and God's self will be with us. That God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. The Holy One promises, To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. God replaces us, reorients us to our place by pointing us towards a new creation where suffering and oppression are no more. We will find this new creation not through adventure to some unknown place, but by rearranging our relationships in our current places by correcting our connection to our places through action, by accepting the invitation and gift and throwing out the rules that no longer serve us. By doing this, we are freed. We will not replace anyone. Today's call to action is a choose-your-own-adventure. I've given four possible rereadings, gifts from the community I study and pray with. 
I invite you to choose one of these as an intentional practice for this week, or discern another rereading and make that your practice for this week. How can you accept or make invitation? How can you set aside the rules that no longer serve you and try something new? How can you act yourself into a new way of thinking? How can you replace yourself in your current place? Thanks for joining me today. As always, let us know how it goes by commenting on our Facebook page or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're using. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, copyright information. And thanks to our editor, Maxwell Pearl, for putting this together. Seriously, thank you, Max. Blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, of transforming the movement and transforming the world. Go in peace. Oh.